Hey everybody, welcome to episode 28 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co-host, Stephen Lewis. What's up, man? Good morning, sir. We're both co-hosts. It's just the first person to introduce says host, right? And since I'm terrible at introductions... You're not terrible at introductions. Oh. What was it? Episode 24, 25? <laughs> Go listen to that one. A Nation Mourns. That was, that was bad. <laughs> Welcome to the Mountain Bike Podcast, where we talk about all things mountain bikes. You can listen to this podcast, subscribe to it, share, and now get stickers and things and top caps, hopefully on pre-order there Yay. in the site uh, by the time you listen to this podcast uh, at mtbpodcast.com. Uh, also on the social things, Stephen? The Instagrams? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, where 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 can they find us? At MTB Podcast on nice. Instagram, the MTB Podcast on Twitter. Cool. I don't twit, but it's. I think I have one. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever been there. I'm sure you have a tweeter. Yeah. Yeah, a tweeter. Yeah. yeah, something like yeah. that. <laughs> and then we're also on Facebook at uh, the MTB Podcast as well. Indeed, there we are. Uh, you can leave reviews for this podcast on on iTunes, and we would greatly appreciate that. Yeah. Five stars. Uh, yes, indeed. If there's any less, let us know what yeah. we can do to be better. We'll send you five dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll something do like that. Yeah, we'll do better. We'll do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. I think we just put ourselves in massive debt. We did. Just the same. <clears throat> uh, let's get. In, let's just cut straight to it, Stephen. Yes. Let's get into the news. All right. Uh, first thing, Stephen. Well, uh, we should cover lots of racing things happened. PC uh, bike race wrapped up. Good mm-hmm. job, Jeff Kabush and Katarina Nash. They yeah. took the wins there. Big surprise. Uh, what I have learned from that is that uh, home field advantage definitely is real to a certain extent, but also it doesn't over doesn't overcome fitness. And, and no. Jeff, man, like Stephen Ettinger gave him a good run for his money, but uh, Jeff's a legend. So yeah. he's getting, he, along with everybody else around the world is getting ready for mountain bike national champs this week. That's uh, true. Or they might've even happened last week for some, but, uh, anyways, good luck to anybody doing that. And, uh, yeah, lots of other racing things happened. Trans BC Enduro wrapped up and I, I can't even remember the results, but nothing really stood out to me. So I don't feel like we should get into it too much. Cause that's what we're all about. Mm. Yeah. Making things better. Uh, but product things. There are a few things. Uh, Push, uh, that's Push Industries, I believe they're called. Uh, They released an ACS3 coil spring conversion kit. So this is for when you have an air fork and you don't like that, but you kind of like it, but you really like coil forks. You like the stiffness of the chassis. Yeah, you kind of like both. So you figure I'll just kind of have both. You're is that funny. right? No. Okay. Not even a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> it's it's a thing in the motocross world. And I wonder if Push is taking some notes from that because air forks in the motocross world are much maligned. People yeah. do not like them. Yeah. Uh, partially due to function. And I think mostly due to function. They have some functional issues in the just in the context of motocross. But also uh, because I think a lot of tradition, people don't like it. Of course. People don't like going away from the coils. But anyways, uh, there are coil spring conversion kits for air spring forks in the motocross world. And I believe that this is something somewhat similar. Similar. Yeah. So this really just... dig into it. So what it does is obviously gives you that linear spring curve. So instead of having the air, like a progressive spring curve, Mm -hmm. this gives you a more bottomless feeling fork. Mm. Uh, But the cool thing about this, uh, this conversion kit is that it comes with a pneumatic bottom out. 
So that's actually an air damper just for the bottom out. So you can actually control via air pressure just in the bottom out. It's like, I think it's what the last, you know, 15, 20% of the travel, it gives you the ability to control that bottom out. So instead of dealing with, I feel like that's like tuning your bankruptcy experience. You're still bottoming out. It sucks, but we can make it feel different. (laughs) I mean, you're in bankruptcy. It sucks, but let's just make (laughs) it feel a little better. I mean, chapter seven versus chapter 11 versus 13, you know, exactly. It's a very different experience. We're going to write it in blue ink instead of red ink. That'll feel better for you. Yeah. (laughs) I'm Um, not so offended. Yeah, exactly. But that also, I mean, it makes sense though. I mean, certain, you know. If you're riding trails that are going to be pushing you to that point or the style of riding that you have pushes you to that point, then why not be able to tune that aspect of it? Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, I happen to like, um, the Fox 36 RC two with three orange spacers in it. It works great for me, but for other people might not work. Yeah. So So. throw this guy in. If you want to have a little bit more of a linear feel Two things, I assume. It'll only cost you $400 and half a pound, just that, over half a pound. That's the crazy heavy, thing, man. Yeah. Because forks are already, you know, the, a, a very heavy component of, of a bicycle. Like yeah. if you have a hardtail, for example, your bike constantly wants to do somersaults because of the fact that it's, you know, that hardtail. Well, yes, that, <laughs> yes. But also uh, because of the fact that the fork is so heavy. It weighs that, more than the frame. Yes. Yeah. And also weighs more than the rear wheel with the drivetrain and everything else in the back. Yep. The front is heavier. So, I mean, forks are heavy as is. So this adds 210 to 285 grams to a Fox 36 float, 65 to 150 grams to a 36 Talus. And that's because the Talus chassis is heavier to begin with, with the dual travel. Yeah, setup. that's what I'm so, figuring. So. But bottom line is this is going to give people more options and more tunability. And there's some people that don't, you know, they just can't seem to dial in their 36 with the, the air system. So this might be a good solution for those people. Yeah, yeah. So. I know, Stephen, can we just diverge really quick? Sure. Can you give me an honest opinion on, uh, would it be more fair to compare a 36 to a Lyric or a Pike? Lyric. So an, a fair comparison between the Lyric and the 36, what do you think are the advantages or what would I feel that would be different between the two? Um, I think the, uh, high and low speed compression adjustment of a 36, when you have the RC two damper, um, that really is for me, the biggest difference between the two. Just to just, so adjustability is, is one of the big ones. I don't care about locking out a fork anymore. I haven't locked out a fork since, gosh, I don't even think back in 2015 on my lefty Supermax. I don't even think I ever locked that fork out. I, I mean, I, I, I ride terrain or the type of racing and riding I do mm-hmm. would justify a lockout more than any other. Well, of course. Well, not more than any other. I mean, if you're like, I guess, live in Kansas or something and it's pan flat and you're riding in a flat non-technical area of Kansas, because I know that Kansas does have technical stuff. Uh, but at that point, you might more. as well ride rigid and Who knows? cross bike or something. Right. But like, I, I so rarely lock my suspension out. Yep. And I went through great lengths to put the X-Lock full sprint on my bike so that I had that rock shocks, like one, one plunger for, to rule them all, so to speak, it would lock out front and rear. And so you only had 43 cables, you know, <laughs> routing from your handlebars down. It's true. Yeah. 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 I have done what I feel like is a decent job in managing that rat's nest. Yeah. No, it, it, yeah. it looks good for a bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
but I went through great lengths for that. And to yeah. be honest, if so, I, I'm always big on on you know looking at your investment of time and costs, of course, as well. Okay, uh, you know, outright dollars and looking back and seeing how often you use it. Like uh, that's why I always point out like people that buy these huge like you know fifth wheel trailers. And they go camping like two or three times a year. And I'm like, I'm glad you're paying a second mortgage for that thing that you, for that house you live in two to three weekends a year, you know? Yeah. Um, so American way, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Debt. Great. Spend a hundred K to live like a homeless person for twice a year. Just make sure you pick up a lot of cheap beer and drink enough to forget about it. Right. So that's the American way. But anyways, uh, so that's how I always kind of look at things. And when I look at the lockouts, I don't use it enough to justify it on my bike, but that said, I already have it and you know, it's not worth uh, switching it out. But, uh, anyways, I guess that my point with, with all of that is yeah. Lockouts. I, I think that they're a little over blown yeah no pun intended there being an air fork thing but yes fair yeah so you would and then what about feel though as a far like 36 versus a lyric they're gonna be very similar overall um okay i really i don't have a ton of time on a lyric i just know that um the spring curve on a on a lyric is typically going to be a little bit flatter than okay. a 36. So I think it's harder to tune the bottom out control, but gotcha. that's just my limited experience with it. Like I'm okay. a Fox guy through and through, like I will probably never run a SRAM fork unless they came out with a 150 or 160 travel RS one. Yeah. That'd be pretty, pretty sweet. two maybe dare we say yeah yeah it's such a good fork yeah. even in, in tiny size it's great i'm sure they could make it good in big size yeah. yeah um yeah i'm thinking that so next year when i build up a 5.5 i'm thinking of going with a 36 mm-hmm. so which is what you should do it just must, unless you want to run sram i mean it's it, just up to you it entirely. must be black though well, that's fine it simply cannot be gold okay then get a performance elite as i'm thinking there you go yeah kashima's for the birds not it into is. it so, and I just said Kashima. Anyways, SRAM, they introduced wheels, Rome 60 carbons. So Rome 60, for those that don't know, that's more their Enduro line, the yes. Rome stuff. And uh, so these are carbon wheels. And uh, looking at it, they're, they're 1900 bucks, 900 for the front, $1,000 for the rear. So it's not a, that's not a, you know, it's not an Envy priced wheel set, but it's also not super cheap. Uh, it's pretty pricey. Uh, you know, a $1,900 carbon wheel set is, you know, honestly right in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I guess. I mean, compared to wheel sets in general, it's pricey for carbon wheels. Yeah. They did did some weird things with this one. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, the thing that I found strange was the four cross lacing on the 28 spoke wheel. So we we talk about four cross, we're not talking about the, the racing discipline. Uh, we're talking about how it's actually the, the pattern in which the spokes are laced from the, the hub to the rim. Yeah. So where, where each, each spoke goes from the hub to the rim, it crosses four spokes Mm -hmm. along its path. That's what four cross versus three cross versus two cross. You just made that super simple. Yeah. Nice job, man. You know, like envy typically on all their mountain wheels, um, I shouldn't say typically on all their mountain wheels, on all their mountain wheels, they use a two cross two lacing cross. to stiffen the wheel up even more, which is why I run 28 spoke envies when I do, because they're almost too stiff when you combine the two cross lacing and yeah. the, uh, um, the ridiculously stiff wheel or rim as it is. Right. So and it, these are 28 hole. These are 28 hole and four cross. Um, they look like pretty stout spokes though. So, and it's not a terribly light wheel set. It's what? 1,790 grams. Yeah. Um, which it, means 
you know, <clears throat> enduro. Uh, you've also got an internal width of 30 mil. Yeah, so which is right on par with everybody's high volume. Pretty chubby. Stuff nowadays. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense. 1790 actually isn't that bad for, for what you've got there, especially yeah. considering, you know, um, yeah, what it's got set up there. They've got their double time. Uh, so it's a four pawl hub. And uh, th these hubs, they don't use cones or anything else like that. Thank goodness, yeah. uh, which is nice. Um, but I wish that they would be using, they would be borrowing from Zip because it's all under the same umbrella. Yeah. And somehow getting, I, you know, I, I assume that it probably can't deal with, or probably can't deal with the abuse, but on the road side of things, they have silent hubs now. Yeah. And I, I so badly want our hubs to be silent. Yeah. Project so. three, two, one, go. Yeah. I would, I would happily, happily run a tiny little nog bell on my bars, something really discreet mm -hmm. that just looks like a, basically like a round clamp around your bars that you could do. I'd happily run that to make sure that my presence is known on the trail. Yeah. Uh, if I could have silent hubs. Fair. Oh, cause the, the, when you can just hear tires on dirt, I do think that there would be actually a tangible performance improvement in your riding. Yeah. No, and that's totally fair because you can hear when you have traction, when you don't, when you're starting to lose it. It's powerful. Like it is you powerful. don't realize how much of that sense you're using. Yeah. So, um, I, that would be sweet to see from, from SRAM, but just the same, uh, it's a good hub what they have there. Yeah. And with that said, you know, my Jekyll has the SRAM 900, uh, 900 hubs, which has a very similar, uh, Paul and the, the setup and yep. it's not terribly loud at all. No, it's not. So. And also, sorry, quick little side note. Hopefully this is educational for people. You can service your free hubs. <laughs> Dare I say you should service your free yeah, hubs. You should definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and do that with a proper grease. That's one thing to know. If you use like a heavy Marine grease on your paws, uh, they may end up getting a little sticky and then they, the engagement might not be good. Then you could actually get into a situation where you're stressing a paw and it breaks and it breaks. It could be a mess. Yeah. So make sure you use the right stuff like DT Swiss. Uh, I, I run their hubs and, uh, I get the little extremely expensive, but little tiny cylinder thing of their, uh, of their grease for their star ratchet system. You know, I have like six of those not even used just sitting in really? my garage. Yeah. I've got a lot of that stuff. That's right. Yeah. Because you were on DT stuff. Yeah. So you would have had it. Yeah. yeah. They're really cool. And you don't need a lot. No. Um, all you need to do is just, you know, I, I actually probably do it maybe overkill, but every two weeks, cause I wash my bike a lot and it's so easy to service a DT free hub mm -hmm. because you generally just pull the cassette off free hub comes off with it. And then all you do is you just, I clean things off with a rag make sure everything is sparkly clean. Then I just put a light coating of grease on and, this. And with those 54 tooth star ratchets, those things are so expensive. You want to keep them in new condition as much as possible. Yes. Yeah. So a hundred dollars for those tiny things. Yeah. It's absurd. So anyways, uh, hopefully that's one thing. And sorry, along the lines of that, after I service them there, it's always a little quieter and I always feel like I have a more in touch experience with the trail. Um, because of that. So, All right, Nancy. So, so, sorry. Yeah. We're getting a little <laughs> okay. weird there, but anywho, uh, they're cool wheels and I, I, I would love to see SRAM and I don't know if this is how they work. This is getting into the business side of things, but I would love to see them be in a situation where they're like white labeling wheels, just because I would think that they would have really good production capabilities, just seeing as how they're SRAM and, and all the resources behind them. Yeah. And then they'd be able to produce some hubs for, or some wheels for like really cheap. That would be really good. Okay. They do produce some lower end wheels. Like I think it's the, they got their rise, the rise series, series yeah. and they're pretty darn cheap. Uh, I had some rise uh, wheels before and, and I didn't love them. I had some, some problems with keeping them true and, and they weren't that, they weren't that solid. So I, I'm sure they've improved since two years ago when I had them, but 
it would be cool to see that because like Bontrager, for example, their line pro wheel set is I think cheaper than this mm-hmm. might be around the same price, but, and it's like stiffer, lighter and everything else. So that they're really Bontrager is really hitting it out of the park. It would be cool to see SRAM do the same. Yeah, it would be. So yep. on the note of wheels, uh, Mavic released another wheel set. Two. Two of them, I should yeah. say. Uh, interestingly, one of them is still very yellow. And I, I don't blame Mavic for that because they should do that because that's very much their brand. Yeah. But certainly not my taste. Um, it's It goes really well with Yeti Turquoise, just throwing it out there for you. It does with that, uh, with uh, the whole anniversary look of their frames that they had last year too. Yeah. So uh, anyways, the D-Max DH, so their DH wheels, uh, 28 millimeter internal width. They have 20 mil spacing and a hundred or 20 by 110 uh, up in the front and 12 by 150, 157 in the rear. That's, that's downhill stuff. It is downhill stuff. It's yeah. funny just watching you say that. You just kind of got like, nervous. You're like, that's whoa, big. That's big spacing. 157? That's big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you think your boost 148 is cool. Uh, why in the world did we stop? Two millimeters short of 150. We didn't need a new standard. Downhill already had one, right? Well, yeah, but the problem with it was the the brake caliper spacing and getting the flange width higher. So we should have done 12 by 150 boost. I agree. That's insane. Instead of, yeah. yeah. But, you know, whatever. Bike industry is going to be bike industries. Yeah. That's how it they works. They make things that don't make sense. Yeah. And they don't do things Truth. properly and smartly. They're 27 and a half inch wheels, uh, 28 front. Uh, 32 rear and they have, uh, let's see, uh, this one, this wheel set. So it's, it's 1950 grams. It actually is pretty darn good for, for a downhill wheel set. Yes. That's pretty good. darn good. Yeah. But here's the awesome part. They're 899. Yeah. 900 bucks for a wheel set. It's pretty good. And for some people who don't understand how Mavic wheels work and why I like them and why they're just, they're very unique. So the cool thing about all of their wheels on their high-end stuff, except for the new carbon wheels, those are different. But any of their aluminum wheels that are what they call, um, when they say they're UST sealed rim design, yep. the spoke and nipple is actually one assembly, and it hooks into the hub and then threads into the front wall or the fore wall of the, the rim. Okay. So if you break a spoke or bend a spoke or anything like that, you literally don't have to even take it off the bike. You don't even you, you don't just even loosen to... the nipple. That's sweet. And then the nipple and spoke comes out of the hub, and then you just put a new assembly in and tighten it in. You know, finding someone who has the specific spokes, you know, that can be a little bit tricky. But then again, nowadays everything is a little tricky when it comes to spokes, unless you have your own threader. True. Um, so carry a few spokes in your pack. That'll be great because then you'll skewer yourself when you fall. <laughs> that's not what I was implying. But <laughs> great okay. tips. Yeah, good. Great <laughs> that's tips. just for yeah. me. Yeah, I'm yeah. just giving people safety tips. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. But honestly, this wheel set is you know very cheap and mm. very good and light and ridiculously strong. I would call this the working man's wheel. Okay. You know? I, I wouldn't disagree. It's cheap, it's strong, it's uh, it's not that heavy either, which no. is pretty cool. And it's easily, you know, you can work on it very easily. Absolutely. Kudos, Mavic. Um, another set of wheel sales, that, or wheels set, or another wheel set, the D-Max Pro, and this, they're, they're black. They just have the yellow hub and then one yellow spoke. Very Mavic there. Yep. Nice stuff. Um, so these ones seem like they're mainly targeted toward Enduro, right? This is their Enduro wheel set. This is what they, they started out with their Crossmax Enduro, and then they had their Crossmax XL and Crossmax XL Pro. This is kind of the next version of that. 
Nice. Uh, 28 mil front, 25 millimeter rear. That's the internal width. Yes. Interesting to see them doing variable internal width from their wheel set. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, they've found that by running the narrow, narrower wheel in the rear, um, you can tailor the traction advantage in the rear versus, you know, rolling resistance a little bit better yeah. when paired with their wheel or their tires, yeah. especially. Yeah. If you're going to have a higher volume tire. Uh, it makes more sense usually to have it up front because that's where the majority of your control is going to be coming exactly. from. Yeah. So you'd be able to run, you know, a wider tire with more supple control. If you look at the BMX world, they've done that for years, yep. uh, wider tire in front than in the back. Uh, so it's pretty common. Um, although it does seem like these days people are just running the same width front and rear, but just the same. This is a 27 and a half inch wheel set. Uh, UST sealed, uh, which is nice. Yep. Uh, never having to worry about rim tape. I've been having so many problems. I think it's just because like the, the fatigue cycle has gone through, but I've had to replace rim tape in like all of my wheels recently, which I know is like a first world problem here, yeah. but it's, it's been annoying. And I've been thinking like, why are these not sealed? Like it would be so nice, but yep. Uh, anyways, uh, these are 1700 grams. So lighter. Yes. And only available in 27.5 though. Yes. Which is not great. Yeah. But I'm sure 29 is forthcoming. Mm, Maybe not. No. Why do you say that? Uh, just because that's how Mavic's been the last few years. They haven't Shoot. done their high end Enduro wheel in 29, only in 27.5. Well, hopefully they'll change that. <clears throat> maybe the, maybe the envy, the, <clears throat> Maybe little envies over there in the corner, giving them some youthful exuberance and excitement about Maybe. that stuff. Who yeah. knows? That'd be awesome. But they're they're eleven hundred bucks US, and they weigh less than those those SRAM sixties we were just talking about. Yep. So pretty cool, man. Um, but once again, we're talking about different sizes there. So, uh, anyways, cool stuff from from Mavic, and I assume that Mavic should be coming out with some pretty interesting new carbon tech. Just because they are going to be, um, their partnership with Envy, I think there'll be some fruits there. Well, they already have actually. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm hoping that down the road, there's even more. Exactly. So, uh, with that, Steven, let's get straight into the questions. First one is from Bruce. About four months ago, I bought a giant Trance 3, uh, first mountain bike switching over from being a roadie. Good to have you over. Yeah. Congratulations. It was, a, I'm sure, a hard fought battle getting rid of the roadiness, but your, you've done it. Your parents must be proud, Bruce. <laughs> he says, and I realized I should have at least bought the Trance 2 because of the dropper post and it having a one buy. Uh, I would like to buy a dropper post and switch to a one by because I don't need to buy at all. Um, before I go any further, I should clarify. I, I race road, uh, quite regularly, quite regularly. So, uh, hopefully you all understand that those comments are very much in jest. About and, and, you know, you keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> so there's <laughs> gotcha. that too. Yes. Uh, he says, my question is, should I invest money in this bike and pay for a new group set? And if so, which group set I was eyeing the GX Eagle when it comes out. I think that's pretty smart of him to keep an eye on that. I'm eyeing that actually. Yeah. Uh, to replace that on my wife's bike with the current X1 setup that she has. So, okay. 
Uh, or should I sell the bike and buy a better bike? <laughs> Yeti. <laughs> and that's not me saying it. That's him. That's him. He actually I'm put just, the coughs. Yes, he there. did yeah. put the coughs in there. I'm reading it. I'm, I'm basically just, I'm bound to it. I have to read them like <clears throat> Ron Burgundy. I read whatever's on the teleprompter. Yes. So, uh, he says, uh, should I just buy a better bike? As he mentioned with overall better components, I bought the Trans 3 because it was cheap and I didn't want to spend a bunch on the, my first bike. But now I'm in love with mountain biking more than I ever was with road. So I have no problem spl- splurging on a bike when I know I'll use it. Thanks and keep up the awesome podcast. What do you think, Steven? If, if he's already justified the cost of a new bike, even up to a Yeti, just go buy a new bike. Do it. Just be done with it. Make it nice and easy. Yeah. Um, the giant trance is no, by, by no means a terrible bike. Not at all. But also it's more of a general trail bike. What are you going to be doing with the bike? Are you going to go race cross country? Are you going to do enduro? Are you going to continue just doing, you know, normal trail now that you're in love with mountain biking? Have you picked a specialty? Do you have a direction you want to go with it? Mm, That's a good point, right? What type of mountain biking do you like to do most and, and keep that present instead of just mountain biking in general? And if you do just like mountain biking in general, then you're, you can, I, I know a lot of people recommend like a bike toward the enduro side of things, but I'd recommend a trail bike. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like 130, 140, and you're going to have a killer bike. But yeah, go go buy a new bike, Bruce. We give you permission. Oh, there we are. Yeah, exciting times. I really, uh, if if this was like four years ago, I would probably not recommend buying a new bike. Yeah. But I feel like we've kind of, and I know that people are going to say that I'm jinxing things, but we actually have kind of hit a plateau temporarily, I'm sure, in terms of standards. Yeah. Everyone is still moving to boost. And I'm sure that we'll have something else coming up, but I feel like if you buy a new bike now, you'll be able to get some good years out of it. Exactly. Like the components that will be coming out will still be compatible with your bike. You'd be able to upgrade or replace if you need to. Yeah. So it is a good time. I think to buy a new bike until the SRAM Eagle 14 speed comes out. Just kidding. That doesn't actually exist, but Shimano does have a 14 speed drivetrain patent, patent. right? Yeah. Yeah. SRAM would have to call that the Albatross or something of that respect. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, Boeing. It's, a, the, it's a 10 to 74 tooth, 14 speed drive. Uh, yeah. yeah. The Boeing 777 would have yeah. to be. They're the, just going to have to go into planes. Yeah, the Dreamliner. Yeah. Uh, next question from Officer Farva. Ah, very nice of him to All send right, that Farva. in. It's powdered sugar. It's delicious. He says, hey guys, thanks for a killer podcast. I'm always waiting for the new one to come out. Love the banter and quality in-depth talk on the bike world and tech. My question is about rear suspension. I'm relatively large at 6'5 and 217 pounds. And I'm constantly pushing my bike hard enough to use all my rear travel on the yes and the my Yeti SB6C with a Flow X shock. It's tuned with custom shim stacks for my weight, but I feel like it's lacking and was wondering if trying a coil is worth the cost. Coils are linear curve rate, so are linear curve rate as well. So does that mean I'll blow th- right through the travel? Thanks, guys. You rock. So uh, SB sixty, you know that bike well. Yep. With a float X, that's uh, not enough shock for bigger guys and aggressive riding. So what would you recommend switching to? Um, I mean, a float X two or the DHX two are both great. Um, you know, me at 210 pounds on the five, five loved the DHX two. I felt like that, you know, even with the linear spring curve, honestly, I never felt like I was blowing through travel and bottoming out, but I was using all of the rear travel 
Yeah. That thing was amazing. It was phenomenal. And you can get like a, what was it? Tile or steel. Tie the the or super light. Super steel, light. The super light steel spring. coil. It doesn't weigh. It's not going to add a bunch of weight to your bike. Yeah. And at 217 pounds, put a 550 spring on that. And, yeah. you know, we can work with you or you can work on, you know, with someone with suspension tuning in the compression and rebound damping. Right. But I just put a customer on a DHX two with a 550 SLS coil. He weighs 205 pounds plus all of his gear and he night and day difference on his SB six. He Sweet. loved it. So I, I would recommend the coil all day long. Nice. Personally. Yeah. I, I think that it's a good way to go on a bike like that, uh, a leggy bike. Yeah. So. And you can, you can pay the extra money. Well, I guess the climb switch is actually coming standard on the eight and a half, two and a half now. So it's not a big deal. Put the DHX two on it. You'll yeah. be fine. You'll be great. You'll love it. I'd say the same. Uh, this next one, I don't know if it is from an individual or a conglomerate of sorts, uh, but it is from Venga Boys. We like to party. So. Do you remember that terrible song, <laughs> oh, by yeah. the way? We all do. Yeah. I I had thought I forgot about it <laughs> but, until just now. But you brought it up. Yep. Uh, so uh, these are, this is a number of questions, but here we go. Uh, love the podcast. Keep them coming. Five stars for sure. We will do that. Uh, we have no intentions of stopping. He says, you guys do great work. And if it can generate you an income, don't shy away from it as long as you stay true to your opinions. Yeah. I mean, it would be nice for this to, if it, if it could actually pay some bills, then I think I could justify more time on it. And Serious. hopefully you'd see us more on social and all those things, but we'll find out how to do that once again when it allows us to stay, as you said, true to our opinions and, and keep it as keep it real as they say. Exactly. I'm a 33 year old, 200 pound, uh, married man. Interesting that he said married in there. Yeah. Good Thanks. to know. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> I guess we're not going to be dating you. Bank yeah. boys. <laughs> he says I'm six foot one inches, uh, father of one Ajax, Ontario, Canada. A, hey. hey. he says, I ride XC, uh, single track and that's what's available around my neck of the woods. I figured I would go back and listen to all the podcasts before I start asking questions. And so now I have a few feel free to pick and choose, but I've ordered them in my preferred order. Uh, number one, I consider myself an idiot intermediate rider. Oh, sorry. This is just more info. I, I consider myself an idiot rider, but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very much an unintentional <laughs> slip there. Yep. Uh, I consider myself an intermediate rider with only four years of riding because I've gathered the knowledge from tips along the way. I race XCO. And for those that don't know what XCO is, that's usually 90 to 120 minute cross country races on a local weekly series, uh, but not to win as I still consider myself an average Joe. And don't fit in with all the Lycra bros. Well, I don't think there's a Lycra bro. There's the baggy bros, the I, Enduro bros, the downhill bros, yeah. XC. I think that they consider themselves probably Lycra bros, which is kind of, it's kind of cute, you know, from the outside in, like, oh, that's, that's so, nice. So adorable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're not bros, uh, but just the same. There is very much a Lycra pack. Maybe it it's like ferrets. It's like a pack of ferrets versus yeah. a pack of wolves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're did, annoying. Did but. you know that a pack of ferrets is actually called a business of ferrets? I think you said that to it's me so once awesome. a few weeks ago. I bet I've randomly. even mentioned on this podcast. It's like my favorite... <clears throat> It's like my favorite fact of, of life. It's yeah. just amazing. It's a business of ferrets. <laughs> a business of ferrets. Yeah. So that's, if you look at them and they are being too cool and persnickety next time, just think of them as a business of ferrets and you'll giggle. So there you go. It'll be great. So, uh, number one, 
<clears throat> in an episode, Jonathan briefly mentioned that he doesn't like changing gears mid climb or that he hates the hearing the sound of the gears of those gears getting bashed by the force of the load at that time. Could you elaborate on how to properly be in the right gear? Still now, I find myself always struggling to get in the right gear all race long. I feel this is probably a, t a topic that can benefit a lot of non-pro racers. I know to try and anticipate, but sometimes I feel like I'm maybe dropping gears too early or too late. Do I need to use a power meter to better gauge my gearing? I currently have a 2x10 Shimano reel setup. Huh, there we are. I think I'm starting something here. Shimano reel. This Fishing is good. reels. Fishing yeah. reels, bro. Uh, we should make that a sticker at some point too, uh, for all of you SRAM people. I actually change gears quite regularly throughout a race. I do too. And I mm -hmm. do it on climbs as well. I do. Uh, but I have an internal clutch, not, and not, we're not, not talking equipment, but in my body. Yes. Uh, basically when I am pedaling, whatever the situation is and I need to shift, I ease up a bit Yep. and then I shift and wait for that gear to engage another plus of SRAM. You get that really positive shifting. It's not like that Shimano stuff where the change is kind of, and just kind of wiggles its way over and maybe finds a cog. Uh, but it's positive. You get a solid feel. And then after that, I put the power back on. Yeah. Fair. So, uh, yeah, I do shift regularly and I shift quite a lot actually. And leading into the, the next part of your question, knowing when to shift, it really, it all comes down to keeping consistent pressure on the pedals. If and you were to look at how to pace a race effectively, uh, it would have the most consistent pacing from beginning to end. That would be the fastest way to race a race. Yeah. Uh, because that would allow you to expend less energy with surges, but also maintain more momentum and be more efficient. So I, I try to know roughly about the type of effort I can sustain for the whole race and I'll stay, I'll try to keep consistent pressure on those pedals. So that means as I'm coming into a climb, I'll shift down lower than a lot or sooner than a lot of people. Uh, because I'm trying to keep consistent pressure on those pedals so that I can maintain whatever pace I'm holding throughout the whole climb yeah. instead of charging into the climb and then killing my legs and having to shift down a bunch and then being flat yeah. or out of energy. So yeah, it's, it's all about, and I constantly change gears and you should never feel bad about changing gears too much unless it's really like throwing your cadence all over the place. Yeah. And that's a big thing. I think that people need to pay attention to, to understand climbing, you know, what your output is, is cadence. Yeah. Yeah. Cadence is key. Yep. That's the key. I feel like maybe I was a little harsh on Shimano back there. I'm trying to like feed this whole, like, because people say we don't disagree enough. I'm trying to feed this whole thing, you know, okay. I'm being really transparent about this right that's now. Fine. Yeah. Should I move on? No, no, it's fine because <laughs> like I have a rebuttal. Oh, good. You know, look at all the warranty claims that uh, SRAM's having with all their guide brakes locking up on everybody. Oh, it's out in the sun. It's too hot. So it <laughs> locked up. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. true yeah uh air five Stephen. we're disagreeing yay nice. air five <laughs> okay uh number two being a husband and father this is the important this is why i mentioned it uh making decent money at my desk job and owning a house i still have a difficult way to understand how someone can drop five to ten k on a bike and be fiscally responsible are people taking lines of credit answer to that yes a lot for the most part are. yeah uh, if you go through like specialized, for example, they have their S card that you can get. And even like in the winter around Christmas time, you can get like deferred interest for like a period of time. Like, yeah. So people are taking that yep. or they're just getting a credit card and throwing it on there. Are they using their life savings to buy these bikes? Possibly. Maybe. Uh, what's the rationale? Is it just YOLO? How do you afford budget, afford and budget your bikes? The only part about this show that I don't agree on is when you guys mentioned just service this, change that it's cheap. When the reality is it's hundreds of dollars that add up quickly. 
how much do you budget per year for servicing parts? Um, and then he says, no, I understand it's cheap compared to replacing the whole bike, but if your bike is worth one to 2k and you spend 600 per year on maintenance, it seems kind of ridiculous. And I completely agree with that. Absolutely. And when we're saying like, you know, service that we are saying relative to purchasing something new or getting a whole new bike, of course, you know, it's something that is relatively cheap. Of course. Uh, so good questions. First one, how do people afford their bikes? How do you afford your bike, Steven? Um, the way that I've always afforded is I just bit the bullet and bought my first expensive bike and Uh granted I wasn't paying retail. I was managing a bike shop at the time. So I didn't pay retail. Mm -hmm. And then every, you know, nine to 12 months, what I would do is I would just sell that bike while it's in really good condition still and properly maintained and sell it for what it cost me to buy the next bike. And so I just rolled bikes is what I really did. Yep. Um, if you're paying retail on a bike, you're always going to take that hit, Yeah, which is unfortunate. It's, I mean, that's how things work. You use a bike, you use a car, you use anything and it just devalues. Um, the thing is you're not going to have to do a ton of maintenance if you're replacing a bike every year, but if you're spending $5,000 every single time on a bike, that's still, you know, 1500 in depreciation. Yeah. Ish, you yeah. know, just say on a $5,000 bike at least. So that's 1500 a year to maintain a bike. Yeah. By not having to maintain it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, if that makes but, sense. But um, <clears throat> a lot of people I see would, they'll buy a really expensive bike and they will essentially, if you're going to ride it for five years, now your, um, your assumed cost over each year on a $5,000 bike for five years is only a thousand bucks a year plus the maintenance of it. Yeah, it goes down substantially. That's that's how I've done it as well. Uh, I, on my first bike that I bought full price, or I shouldn't say uh, a first bike that I just bought full out, Yeah, uh, I didn't get much of a deal at all. I think it was like 5% off because the dealer was having a, a sale, right? Okay. And then basically what I've done is I've tried to sell those bikes um, and, and put whatever that money is into the next bike. Mm-hmm. And one thing I would say, we've talked about this before, but selling your bike, uh, I think a big mistake a lot of people do is they'll, they'll want to sell their bike. They'll get in a crunch. They need to sell it quick, but they're asking, you know, uh, either what may be, they may see as a fair price, but it's relatively high. Yeah. And something you mentioned that I think is really clever is putting your bike up for sale for a very long time, long before you plan to sell it yep. and just build up interest and let people know that like, yeah, like I'm planning on selling it and this is what I'll be doing. And I think that that's a very good way to do it. Yeah. Uh, and also if you are in a situation where you don't have a lot of time to sell it, just sell it cheap, man, or else it's never going to move. Yep. So it's really tough to build momentum on that stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's how, that's how I do it. And I roll it through. I, I, I do get, uh, decent discounts on things, but I would say just with being in the bike industry. Yeah. Uh, but I would say, honestly, I find like, I, I just had to replace my fork and it was cheaper on eBay than going through any type of a pro deal. Yeah. Uh, so eBay, and this is brand new, by the way, yeah. uh, you can find stuff on eBay, brand new stuff from noted, you know, notable retailers or, or well, well-known retailers for really cheap. Yeah. So, uh, a lot of that too, that's how I would build one up cheap. Um, we've talked about building up bikes versus, uh, buying new ones. I'm sure you've listened to that since you listened to all the episodes. So hopefully that gave you some insight. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if it's a sport you really love, if it's something that helps you be active, um, you know, what's 1500 a year, 2000 a year, that's expensive, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's worth it 
for your sanity, for your well-being, for your health. Totally. You know, if you're if you're out riding your bike five days a week or four days a week and you're not in a gym, there's 50 bucks a month right there. That's, you know, that's 600 bucks a year that you're not spending on a gym. So there's always ways to justify the cost of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that we love to do. So it's yeah. one of our hobbies. So we're not doing other activities that would cost money. Exactly. Right. That's how I justify it. Yep. Same here. Yeah. Same here. His next question, uh, we'll rip through these quick. How do you bunny hop over logs on flat or uphill? Uh, saw a guy pass me on a race and he just leaped right over the log tips. Uh, well, uh, uphill may be a little more difficult because momentum certainly is your friend. Yes. Uh, depending on how large the log is, if it's just like a, you know, a foot tall or something like that. Yeah. You can just like hop right over it relatively easily. Yeah. Um, just look up, like I would recommend looking up Ryan Leach's course on bunny hopping. Yeah. He online. has a course online that works Super really good. good. Um, essentially, you know, when it really boils down to it, it's, you know, pull up on the handlebars, you know, jerk the handlebars, get the front wheel up, and then you push the handlebars forward. Yep. And obviously if you're clipped in, you can help by, you know, pulling up on your feet, but that's essentially how you do it. You load up the suspension and then you just pop up and that's about it. That's it. It's, yeah. a, it's actually not terrible. Yeah. More advisable to learn this on flats if you can't bunny hop yet yeah. uh, because it'll build proper technique. Yeah. Uh, okay. Next one. Is it true that it's better to start off on a hardtail because it makes you learn more technical skills before going to a full suspension bike? I think there's some truth to that. I mm -hmm. think that it helps you learn because the bike's more rough. So you have to learn how to pick smoother lines mm. and then, yeah, helps you build a little technical skill. Yeah. I, I start on a hardtail, but I, I wrote, benefits. I wrote a year on a hardtail, uh, and kind of with those intent yeah. or those intentions. And what it really did is it just made me more aware of any type of slack that I would be, uh, exhibiting while riding. So I had yeah. to be much more, I had to stay frosty, so to speak. Yeah. So it was good, good training. Uh, but I also think that you can learn plenty fine on a full suspension bike, as long as you're aware and you're not just the type of dude that just plows in anything he sees. Yeah. So, uh, cool. I guess that, that covers it there. Um, good stuff. Thanks for sending in those questions. Uh, next one is from Buckeye. He says, Hey guys, let me start by saying I am dumb, not dumb enough to not give you guys five stars after you answered my question last time. Sweet. Good to hear. I am however, dumb enough to have bought and installed an absolute black oval chainring with a six millimeter offset when I should have purchased a three millimeter boost offset. So I put approximately 300 plus off-road miles on my stumpy with a six millimeter offset chain ring. It started to make some drivetrain noise. So I replaced the chain with a KMC 11 speed gold chain. Absolute black doesn't recommend that by the way. And even a new derailleur hanger. I decided to take it to a local shop. The shop manager noticed the chain line right away. So I put the OEM race face chain ring back on. It's much better after some tuning by the, uh, after some turning by the shop. I did also order the three millimeter absolute black oval right away. My question, what should I keep an eye on that I may have prematurely worn? Also, my stumpy is a large and I am much more comfortable with it. Thank you for your help. Buckeye RT, home of the Buckeyes. Oh, and he states that they're 2014 national champs. I think I would have to be into college foosball to understand that reference. Or be from Ohio. Yes. They love the Buckeyes. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't get football. It's, it's a really cool stadium, but architecturally nice. speaking, yeah, and, I've and been I, there. I don't dislike football. I just don't get it. It's kind of like me looking at like advanced, I don't know, advanced calculus or something. It's, it's there. It's, I don't get it. It's a thing. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, things that he may have worn, but first of all, if he has a six millimeter offset versus a three millimeter offset, are we, would that, that would be putting it 
further into further the bottom toward bracket. the center of the bottom bracket. Yeah. So essentially, the only things that he's going to wear by putting the chain line off that way is the chain itself and the cassette or not the cassette, the actual chain ring. Yeah. I mean, if you're spending a lot of time down in your 10 with that one, uh, you know, down in like the, the smallest cogs perhaps, but I, I doubt it. We very yeah. rarely use those. Yeah. And in most cases you're also not, you probably got some momentum. So it's not like you're, you know, putting in a ton of torque and exactly. with that you would be with a smaller gear. So yeah, probably just the chain, which, yeah, think, which like you've, you've already done. I think you're fine. Yeah. I don't think you have anything to worry about. Win, Buckeye. Mako. Uh, love the pod. I, started I think it's listening. Mako. Like no, Mako Shark. It's actually Mako. Oh, it is. Yeah, because he said it's Mako like Taco. That oh. was, yes. He well, there we go. There. Never yeah. mind. There we are. Uh, Mako says, love the pod. I started listening a week ago and can't get enough. I've always been involved in higher intensity bike riding all, all, all of my life. Started with BMX in the 80s and added... Uh, he says that, and then ended up racing is in the Norba stuff as an expert in pro DH in the late nineties. Nice man. I recently got back on the bike about four years ago after a friend helped me get, uh, get going with a Trek remedy seven between the times of competing and my return to the saddle. I've spent a ton of time surfing, skating, and snowboarding. We're lucky enough as a family to get in about 70 days on in the snow. Nice. Dang, I got two this year. Yeah. Nice. And a torn ACL out of it. Yeah. And a hospital day Yay. or a few out of those. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, it sounds like Mako is from SoCal. If he's getting in surfing, skating, snowboarding, uh, you know, maybe. Yeah. So he's either SoCal going to Mammoth and Big Bear or he's Santa Cruz and just trekking all the way up to Tahoe in the winter. Yeah. 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 Good, good on you, man. Sounds like a life well lived. Well, on the bike I ride, uh, while on the bike I ride, I like to think that I'm still 20. And when I crash, I'm always turning to the right. I am goofy footed and heel side turns to the right. Uh, he says my heel side turns to the right are not as strong as my toe side turns. Do you feel that there are goofy and regular footed riders out there? Absolutely. Totally. There's always a corner. I feel way more comfortable on left turns and right turns. Yeah. So I am goofy footed. So on, on a skateboard Okay. and I'm also goofy footed on a bike. Uh, my right foot's forward. Okay. So uh, a lot of people ride with left foot forward. Mm-hmm. And that's just, uh, so yeah, definitely there is goofy and regular and it does make it different for you to working on different turns, in different directions. However, I've really worked on just with simple drills on making sure that I'm comfortable turning both directions. And I can actually say now that it's very hard to tell a difference. Yeah. That said, if I look at my tires, they generally tell me a different story. Yeah. Um, my tread on my right side. So when I, you know, keep in mind, I have my right foot forward and the tread on the right side, especially on my rear tire always has much more wear on it than I look on the left side. Okay. So you're opposite of me. So, yep. Which makes sense. Are you left foot forward or right foot forward? I'm typically left foot forward, but I am fairly ambidextrous on that. Look at you, mister. But, huh. but if you want to know something secret about me, uh, <laughs> back in the day when I used to play soccer, I kick left footed. Yeah. But I can also kick right-footed, and I'm totally fine. Hmm. But I'm uh, left-foot dominant, but I ride snowboard, wakeboard, all of that. I ride like I'm right-foot dominant. Interesting. Yeah. You're like, uh, how shall we say, a regular Lionel Messi there. Ah, all of that. Whatever you just said. Yes. God bless you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no power, no life. Says, hey, guys, love the podcast. It's definitely my top listen. Full five stars. Question. I have a Garmin Edge 500 and would like to get power meter data, but power meters are too expensive for my poor self. Hey man, they're expensive for all of us. It's, it's crazy how expensive they are. Yeah. He says, I would like to know if there's a way to get real time power estimates with heart rate, speed, and cadence sensors. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Honestly, if you're riding outside, no, 
other than like Strava does, you know, with their rides does an estimate and like your power output, but it's not very accurate. No. And that's the point, right? That's and it's like, not even consistent. That's the thing. Like, would you accept a ruler if somebody said like, yeah, here's a great ruler. It's free and it might be 12 inches, but it's known to be very much not 12 inches in any direction and not consistent. Yeah. You would say like, no, sir, please keep that ruler. I have no use for it. Yes. Would you not? No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Right. So and now looking at this, like, don't even look at Strava's power estimation. Nope. It's absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. Uh, one funny thing with that, I knew a rider once who put in that he was like 300 and something pounds. So then it's his estimated power was like through the roof on every climb. Good. Great. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not, and here's why. So we've talked about this before, but power meters work on force and speed and, or force and velocity. And in this case, in most cases, what you're doing is you're measuring the speed at which you're turning the pedals and how hard you're pressing yeah. through the drivetrain like that. Yep. So because of that, that's really the way to measure power. Power is a precise measurement. There's no point in estimating it when you're riding in variable conditions like that. Exactly. And this will change for the different speed. It, you can't tie directly to it because of the surface you're on or the ambient conditions. Uh, you can't tie in heart rate because heart rate is extremely variable. Uh, have a cup of coffee or drink a little less or have extra stress or uh, be at elevation, be in the heat or in the cold. So many different things will affect heart rate. So you can't use that. Uh, it's kind of tricky. So, but I mean, if you're on the trainer, you can do that because you have limited those variables and you can keep the two variables that really matter there, which is tire pressure and roller pressure consistent. So that's what virtual power is on trainer road. So, uh, another question on trainer road from snickerdoodles. Those are good cookies. They are good cookies. He says like my like, second favorite cookie. Yeah, I'm fasted right now. Cause I have to go to a body fat test. You're such a nerd. Oh, so I really, a snickerdoodle sounds great. Yeah. Uh, he says, is trainer road exclusively for indoor trainers? If not, what are the nuts and bolts of using it out on the road or trail? Oh, I was thinking if he just like put his trainer on the patio, then it's an outdoor trainer. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, no snickerdoodles. It's not exclusively <laughs> for indoor. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so it is designed for indoors and that's where it's going to be best implemented. However, I do know of people and have even used it uh, riding outdoors as well. The downside to that and something you just have to pay attention to is... Well, I, ironically, I say, pay attention. I, I always worry about following interval workouts too closely outside. Yeah. And the thing is with interval workouts, you can try to shoot for an average for a specific duration, but that's not the best way to get, uh, in an interval. And what I mean by that is like, let's say you have to ride at 300 Watts for three minutes, right? Yeah. And, uh, you start out that interval and you go out really hard. Then your average might be reading way over 300 Watts for a while. So you might ride below 300 Watts for a portion of that interval to try to finish off and average it out. Right. Mm -hmm. But the point of the 300 Watts is we want you for every second of those three minutes to be as close as you can to that 300 Watts, because a specific thing happens when you're riding at 300 Watts. Does that make sense? Yeah. So instead of going to like an average where you, you know, you're, you're riding above or below just to pull a number where it is, so you can feel good about it afterward. You're not getting the proper workout then. No. So because of that, it's kind of tricky to use something like that outside. That said, I know a lot of people do. And, you know, if you're in an area where it isn't dangerous, uh, where you don't have to worry about cars, you know, and, and paying attention. Or red lights ruining your 300 watt average. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you don't have to worry about that, then sure. I know a lot of people also use trainer road. They just put it in their back pocket and they pair it to their sensors. So then, and then they load a workout that we have called free ride. And then that way it just logs their data. Yeah. Um, but, uh, 
more news on that at some point in the near future. Um, I won't share a whole lot on that. Anyways, uh, hopefully that gives you an insight on that. Uh, snickerdoodles, definitely, uh, indoor things. Uh, Dave says, awesome podcast. Love your high nerd and low bro dial settings. I like that. We actually, Steven and I adjust the knobs every time we come in here. We do. We increase the nerd yeah. to 11 and drop the bro down. So, uh, your deep dives into the physics and tech of mountain bikes is super helpful. I am five, six, 140 pounds and ride on the East coast out of Richmond, Virginia. I'm on a custom seven tie hardtail, a hundred millimeter Sid up front. Sid is a rock shocks fork. If those don't, or for those that don't know. It's a great bike, which has some sliders and currently set up for 17 inch stays sliders, meaning single speed, horizontal dropouts. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so single speed stuff, uh, not, not necessarily, necessarily, but yes. Okay. Usually used for single speed, but not, not required. Yes. Yeah, some bikes have adjustable horizontal dropouts where the derailleur hanger is built in. So it mm. slides with the rear axle, but I'm not familiar with seven. Yeah. So I don't I know what their setup is. I know of them. Okay. And I've seen them, but I don't, I've never actually ridden a seven. So he says, I'm looking for some squish, but want a fast, responsive, playful bike. I don't race much, but like to go fast and like some air and drops. I think being small, uh, he says, I think being small, that short stays are huge to be able to get my weight over the rear axle. I was considering the Scott spark and, and the pivot Mach four trails here, are a bit techy, rooty, rocky, and no huge mountains. So the bike doesn't need to party too much. Any thoughts on those bikes or others I should consider? Five stars coming your way on iTunes. I like both of those bikes. And I also yeah. like the scalpel. Yeah, I was, I, that's actually, you know, I was going to say that the pivot might not be as playful as you're looking for. Maybe it will. I can't, I don't remember that bike, the Mach 4 being playful when I rode it. However, it was only a short test ride. Of course. And did uh, you ride it recently? No, okay. I haven't ridden it. Uh, it was two years ago. Okay. Well, so, it's a different bike now. I yeah. Think, so, yeah. So I don't remember it feeling playful. I do remember it feeling very good at soaking up bumps. Yeah. Like it was really good at that. Yep. So that's one thing to consider. You're looking for something playful, but at the same time, uh, uh, like something like a Mach 4 might be really good at soaking up all that techy, rooty, rocky stuff you mentioned. Uh, the Scott Spark, the new one, I really dig the Geo on it. Yep. It's good. Uh, the new Epic will probably be much more playful than than people might think. It's got solid geometry on there. Is that the, the Epic ASR or the... <sighs> <laughs> Uh, geez. yep. Um, that one. So, yeah. and, uh, then the ASR is a killer bike too, for that. It, yeah. That bike is so playful. I love mine so much fun. <clears throat> yep. And it's actually really good on the techie, Rudy Rocky stuff too. Yeah. Uh, with the Fox shock, you'll actually get a little bit more initial plushness. I have a rock shocks Monarch. It's a little bit more initially stiffer. You get a little bit more of a playful feeling out of that. Uh, but if you're riding on that techie, Rudy, Rocky stuff, I would search for a little more initial plushness. Um, yeah, I think this, the spark, the, uh, the spend, then of course, personally, I can't recommend the ASR more enough, man. It's so much fun. So yeah, yeah I just spent two more days up at bike parks up in North star mm -hmm. on it. And, uh, just like full grins the whole time, man. It's such a fun bike. So even in gnarlier stuff. So, uh, Kenny says, uh, more of a tip than a question. Uh, I'm listening to you talk now about the Carson city Epic, uh, which is the, the Epic rides off-road, uh, the Carson city off-road, I should say, uh, which got me thinking about a great event we're doing here in the fall. It's called the Eden Epic. It's pretty amazing trails from start to finish with amazing scenery and great descents. I checked it out. Looks pretty sweet. Uh, and I'm actually headed out to park city. Well, that's not in Park City. That's in Salt Lake area mm -hmm. uh, toward Ogden. But uh, I'm headed out to Park City in September. Yeah. And I'm going to ride something called the Park City Point to Point. I heard that's um, 
Who was talking to us about that? Uh, Keegan Swenson. Keegan, yeah. He was right. the one, he, he got me interested in it and it sounds like an absolutely miserable day. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be really hard. 15,500 feet of climbing in 76 miles. Mm. However, 70 of those miles are single track. That's crazy. And you don't even like retrace your steps. That's awesome. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. So, and that, and I want to do that one because number one, I love park city. Mm -hmm. It's such a cool place and the trails are really good. So I want to see if it's possible to get sick of park city trail after riding it for that under those conditions for that long. Okay. I think it might be possible. You have the weirdest <laughs> grin on your face right now. So yeah. 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 Um, anywho, thanks for the tip on the Eden Epic. Uh, that looks like a really cool race. And I bet the views have to be amazing from there. Yeah. Um, gorgeous place. So, uh, Noah, and he says, no podcast the last two weeks. I can't tell you how much, or I can't tell you guys how much I miss it. Your show is a highlight of my week and it gets me soaked for the weekend. We, the listeners really value what you provide and are immensely grateful. Let us know how to best support you so you can continue to provide excellent content. Head over to the store on mtbpodcast.com. Buy four shirts each. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> more of that makes it so that I can justify more of this. So then I can say, uh, I'm sorry, uh, sweetheart. I need to spend some time doing this. And she'll be like, that is okay because that is helping pay the bills. She'll be okay with that. There you so, go. Uh, question, <clears throat> looking to trade in my current ride uh, and considering a Yeti. He used all caps, which makes me think that he's talking about perhaps a thermos or a cooler. Yeah. It's almost in the right font to be the <laughs> Yeah, right? As yeah. I drink my coffee from my Yeti <laughs> yes. Rambler, Tumblr thing, yeah. whatever. Different companies, by the way, if anybody yes. doesn't know. Austin, Texas. Yep. Golden, Colorado. Different companies. Those are different locations, believe it or not. They are. Yes. <laughs> different states. Yeah. Uh, he says, I'm torn between the SB5, the 6, and the 5.5. I rode the 5, and sadly, it was not what I expected and not what I was hoping for. Although I was on a size large, and it was a little too small. I think the XL would have helped, but really, it just felt too low in the BB, and I was getting pedal strikes everywhere uh, like I never have before. Something I've noticed really quick. That happens a lot when you're demoing a bike Yep. for a couple of reasons. Number one, the suspension might not be set up for you exactly how you want it. Yeah. Right. And it's so also you might not be the same bike through. you've been riding. That's the other thing. Yeah. And so you're just not used to, you don't realize how expert you've become at placing pedal strokes. Like on your specific, on your bike. specific bike. Yeah. Yep. And that has a lot to do with wheelbase. That has a lot to do with bottom bracket height, but everybody's so close on bottom bracket bike height anymore. Yeah. I, I've noticed that though. I pedal strike when I'm renting bikes or testing one out or something. Yeah. I have more pedal strikes than normal. Yeah. When I first got on the Jekyll, that was the first thing I did is hit every rock in Sparks, Nevada yeah. on the first ride I went on. And then I'm like, oh, this is how it goes. Yeah. And then I've been fine. Then you figure it out. Yeah. He says, uh, it climbed really well, but it was just a little cramped in the cockpit. Yeah. After looking at the geometry and offerings, the 5.5 is looking wicked. Yep. He says, I hope to demo it next weekend before I make up my mind. Would you continue with your Yeti nerdery and give an in-depth opinion on the strengths and weaknesses of the 5.5 and the 6, or maybe just the differences in characteristics or terrain or rider they might best be suited for? And really, why is Yeti better than other uh, than other VPP platforms like Santa Cruz? Cheers and all the best. I, so I'm not sure it's fair to say that it's better than one of them. It's um, different. It's different. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So let's cover the first thing. Um... Strengths and weaknesses of 5.5 to 6. We've t covered this before, but do you want to give a quick recap? It, I Honestly, I'm just going to tell you right now that the bikes ride so similar and uh, all the way around that 
the biggest thing you're going to notice the difference one the wheel size you might notice a little bit mm-hmm. but two the biggest thing is the rear suspension on the on the six you're going to notice on bigger you know bigger drops bigger days like bike parks it's going to feel a little bit more planted and a little bit more at home on bigger stuff and Other, we're talking big stuff yeah we're talking like actual downhill courses not just the Gnarly blues stuff at a bike park yeah so with that said you can't go wrong with either one yeah, the five's the five five is going to pedal better uphill. That's it. Yeah, my brother said that you know when he rode those back to back. I've ridden the five five. I haven't actually ridden the six. Um, I should do that. But um, my brother said when he rode them back to back, he felt like the six. He felt like to really get the bike like behaving well, he really felt like he had to push it hard or like be moving quick. And that's fair to get the most out of the bike. And he said the five five felt like it would still give him everything he needed in terms of capability on the high end, but it was just easier to ride. Yep. So that's one thing, uh, characteristics, terrain, or rider. If you're going to be doing like a lot of, if you're doing a lot of gnarly stuff and we're talking gnarly bike parky, like really, or sketchy downhill stuff, like the black diamonds that say advanced riders only in red, double not black, just the black, yeah, yeah not just you, the blacks or the double blacks, but the ones that also on top of that are red. Yeah. Yeah. Like gnarly stuff. If you're riding really gnarly stuff, then the six might be a little bit more your flavor. Like you said, it might be a little more composed in the rear there. Yeah. Honestly, though, for the majority of people, I think that for the trails that most people ride, the five, five is probably going to be a better bet. Yep. Uh, now why in his words, he says, Yeti is better than VP VPP from a Santa Cruz. It's not necessarily better. No. Um, it's also, uh, a lot of people look at the switch infinity system and it looks really complex, but it's actually very simple. Way simple. Yeah. Basically those two stanchions, they have no damping the switch infinity system, and it just allows that lower pivot to move vertically up and down. It's just, it's basically taking the, it's making it so that you have translational motion. That's all it's doing is it's just a different way to skin a cat. It's not better or worse. At the end of the day, you're still skinning a cat. Yeah. It's a killer system. Sorry for kitty lovers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's a killer suspension system that will give you a really solid platform when you're pedaling. Yeah. So, and I just don't like flat build hats. So that's why I don't like VPP as much. <laughs> gotcha, yeah. yeah. I was wondering where you're going with that. Yeah. Now I get it. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. And once again, Santa Cruz, we love, we love you and your bros. Um, it's just always, it's, you're an easy target. Um, so please throw it back at us. Yeah. We're all for it. I need to ride the high tower LT by the way. Yeah. 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 I want to test that sucker out. So anyway. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I, I, I guess that Santa Cruz or VPP stuff used to be known for like a lot of pedal kickback. And not so much anymore now that they're getting yeah. those the, the lower, lower leakage longer and moved forward. Yeah. I think they're getting better and better. Are we getting to a point where we could like, all, dare we use the word, this is too strong of a word, but the direction we're going like homogenization with, with performance of rear suspension systems, like in the sense that like, all of them are becoming refined to the point where they're delivering a good experience. I would say yes. Yeah. And we're, we're kind of getting to that point, right? It's not like one is, they do have different, like, like I said, the really stable pedaling platform of a Yeti is definitely a characteristic. Yeah. Um, certain things like, you know, giant has uh, with her maestro system, it has like a bottomless feel almost feels like a dirt bike, you know, like it feels like you have more travel than you have. Yeah. I don't know. So there, there are a lot of different things. Exactly. Like uh, Steven, we're going to get into something really quickly here on that. We're just going to go straight into the business. Um, and we'll take care of this one. Hopefully this will be super procedural for everybody. So let's get into the business business.
All right, so we're going to talk about prepping for a race, but if you don't race, don't tune out. This could also just be a day of particular import. So whether you are riding with friends or riding in a cool place or anything else, hopefully you can extract some of these things, uh, some of these principles so that you can have a better day on the bike. Yes. That's the goal. Uh, if you race, it'll certainly be uh, 100% applicable. If you don't race, it is still 100% applicable. Uh, so first of all, uh, one thing I wanted to cover, and this is on the race side of things, but before we go into how you prepare for something, you need to prioritize your events. Yes. Uh, so I usually use ABC and a race is definitely your biggest race of the year. You might be able to have like up to three of these in a year, but I wouldn't recommend having more than that because you should really plan your year around these races. So you right. need some time to prep. So a race or maybe a couple A races, then B races. Usually those are analogous to your A race in some way. Uh, it's not going to be like a season goal, but, uh, what a B race will do is maybe it emulates the conditions you'll have on race day. Okay. Or maybe you want to put to the test your pacing strategy or nutrition strategy, or some type of equipment approach that you're taking that for your A race, the B race could be a good way to suss that out okay. really well. Yeah. Uh, usually B races are closer in proximity on the calendar to your A race. Okay. So that way it makes sense, right? B races build into A and then C races are totally inconsequential usually to your A race. And they're also inconsequential to your, your B races. You should look at these as workouts basically, or opportunities to really throw something on the wall and see if it sticks. Yeah. And, uh, you can have plenty of C races many as you want. Yeah. So, and, and now with that said, like if you're doing something like going with the enduro side, like California enduro series, where you've got six or seven events spread Sweet throughout series. the year, you're going to have two or three of them that are going to be the hard ones. You're like, I know that, mm. you know, the technical abilities I'm there, but the wildwood enduro, let's just say that one up in Mendocino County. Yep. That is one pedally long high output race. So that might be one of your two or three a races. Whereas China Peak or North Star, which are more gravity oriented, are going to be your B races. You they don't have might to be. focus on them as hard, yep. but it's all part of the same series. Or if you feel like, you know, you really want to focus on whatever the race is, that's a really good point. Yeah. Uh, awesome point that you brought up. Don't just, if you're going to do a series, don't just say, I got to be in good form for the whole series. Don't do that. Yeah. Cause like, that's not going to happen. No. Yeah. Impossible. So try to pick and choose which ones you can get greater advantage on relatively or relative to your competition and, yes. and prepare for those all in. Exactly. So, yep. Hopefully that gives you some tips. If you have any questions on prioritizing races, let us know. Uh, training. Now let's get into this about how you prepare for a race on the fitness side of things. Uh, we'll do a whole episode where we talk about how to trend your fitness in a specific direction and how to like prepare for an event. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned for that in a future episode in the business. But, uh, basically you want to build up your fitness toward an event, but it needs to not only build up in intensity and volume, but it also needs to build up in specificity. And what I mean by that is you want to start replicating things. The closer you get to that event, you, your, your efforts should start looking more like the ones you'll do on race day. Yes. So that's uh, basically how that goes there. Um, but there's also the technique side of things for us mountain bikers that I feel like we neglect a lot. Mm -hmm. I've been putting in a lot of time working on technique recently okay. and I feel like it is, it has given me a lot of confidence and allowed my mind to be more at ease coming into single track six that I have coming up in a half a week, which is your a race. It's my a race. Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of work on this technique stuff and I feel like it's 
it's allowed me to just like not even fret about that at all. Yeah. Not that I necessarily did before. I feel like I've been a capable rider, but now I feel like that's like such a huge strength that all I have to worry about is the fitness stuff. There you go. So, um, but work on that and think about the race that you're going to do. If you have, uh, you know, Sandy conditions, I don't know. And you're going to be right racing in that type of stuff, go and work on your technique in that type of condition. Or if rock gardens are the bane of your existence and you know that you've got a race with a lot of rocks in it, like, I don't know, China peaks enduro. Yeah. yeah. Then yeah. Then go work on that. Looking at you, Dylan Santos, yeah. um, tumbler down and, the hill. Oh God. And still one. <laughs> it's an amazing guy. Yeah. Um, so, and then also on the psychological side of things, uh, you'll want to prepare yourself in those three areas, right? Fitness technique and psychological mm -hmm. aspects. And on the psychological side of things, part of it ties in, I believe, you know, trusting in a solid preparation for a race is going to put you in a great mental state for your race. Absolutely. If you don't have good preparation coming into it, you're probably not going to be, you know, feeling very psychologically uh, focused or, or stable coming into a race. So I, I, you know, that's very key, but part of that as well is preparing yourself for any type of situations you come across in the day and knowing how you're going to respond beforehand. Yeah. So you don't let emotions and, and irrational, uh, decision-making take control. Of course. Cause that's something that I find is really big. Like, well, Dylan Santos, like we just mentioned, uh, you had that crash at China peak, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of just crashing and then instantly, you know, being, uh, you know, woe is me or and demoralized panicking. about the whole situation. Right. Instead, he just bounced right back up, probably was really hurting, but still bounced up, got to his bike, just kept going. Yeah. I feel like, and I, this may be wrong, but I bet that Dylan prepped beforehand in his mind about how he is going to react to those type of situations. Dylan is methodical about his prep, especially when it comes to the mental side of things. So yes, he was very well prepared for that. Yeah. And you know, he rides on the ragged edge of what most people consider controlled chaos anyway. Yep. And so he's very well prepared for situations like that. Yep. You know, he's so focused on what he's doing that the, the crash itself was inconsequential to him. It didn't matter right. that he, you, you look at that and he lost a solid 30 seconds and yep. sometimes races are a lot closer than that. Yep. But he was so focused on finishing and, you know, doing as fast as he could, he lost 30 seconds, but still, still finished won. and still won the race. Pretty impressive stuff. Yeah. Now, and, and a lot of this also goes toward mechanicals. Know how you're going to react with that mechanical beforehand instead of just losing your cool with yeah. it. Uh, nutrition issues, if you come across something like that, whatever it is, or uh, going up to those dreaded rock gardens. Make yeah. sure that you are psychologically prepared for that so that when you come to it, you can manage things well and it doesn't throw off your day. Exactly. So uh, that's a really important thing is to just put in your reps psychologically beforehand. Yeah. And this also goes for people that don't race. If you are going on a big ride and it might, let's say you're going to go do shuttle runs in Moab with your friends and you end up, you know, at a point on porcupine rim that makes you feel really uncomfortable. Uh, this is another spot where maybe the fitness comes into it. Make sure that you're prepared for it or else you'll drag the whole group down. Exactly. Make sure that you're technically prepared with fitness and then also psychologically. So yeah, goes for everything. Uh, equipment prep. Uh, let's talk about bike maintenance really quick. Pre-race stuff. So first of all, we have, as we've talked about ad nauseum. You want to always be maintaining your bike uh, a little bit every day Yeah, you ride or every time you ride makes it a whole lot easier. You don't have to do one big thing where you end up having to deal with huge problems. Yeah. The, so. the more often you clean your drivetrain, the less you're going to have to replace your parts. Correct. The more, you know, things are in adjustment as far as your, you know, rear derailleur, 
the less things wear. Yep. The more you keep up on, you know, the just keeping the fork stanchions and shock stanchion clean, the less you have to rebuild it. There's so much that goes, you know, with the free maintenance side of things. Totally. That makes it cheaper. Yep. It really run. does. Yeah. So. so, and then on the. Oh, and always check your sealant. Always uh, yes. check your sealant. <laughs> As Steven knows. Well, well, I know that because just uh, going back to the lost and found the gravel grinder with Rich, the the owner of the bike shop that I used to manage. Yeah. He borrowed like my Super X and didn't bother prepping the bike. And my bike had been sitting on a trainer or, you know, sitting in the garage, not getting used with my knee injury. Yeah. And he got four flats because he didn't check for orange seal in the tires before he went and raced a hundred miles. He probably just assumed Steven's bike is always perfect. Oh, that's exactly good. what yeah, he yeah. So that's why yeah. it's my fault because yeah. normally yeah. that should be the case, but I wasn't riding the bike much. So, right. yeah. yeah. So that's a great one. Um, so let's talk about this really quick though. It does change with A, B or C events, you of know, course. C races are going to be more common with your A race. I really do recommend going through that thing thoroughly. Oh, absolutely. Make sure it does not fail on you. Yeah, Cause you do not want a mechanical to be the reason that you don't finish the race or don't win a race or don't podium or however you want it or, or get through that 60 mile adventure ride that you're going to do that day. That's, you don't want mechanicals to be the debilitating factor in your a races absolutely yep yeah. um now when we talk about uh, regular maintenance you should do checking or sealant it can be as easy as shaking your tires yeah if you hear it sloshing around in there you're probably good you're probably good yeah so uh and different sealant lasts for different times orange seal we've all found lasts longer yeah. than other ones uh, so you'll also want to make sure you clean your drivetrain, do all that stuff. But one thing that I've found is making sure that you get all your bike prep done before as in a day or two before is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, because that way it gives you, if you start doing your bike maintenance two days before that hopefully will give you some time to go to the bike shop. Uh, if it's major bike maintenance, start doing it even before that. Yeah. So then you have time to order parts. Like if you're Amy Morrison and you're like, Hey, I'm doing an A race tomorrow and brake pads are shot. Does this sound, uh, this seems like you're it's oddly specific, yeah. Know, yeah. <laughs> oddly specific. Yeah, yeah. It's only happened twice or three times that I can remember. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Love you, Amy. Amy. Yeah. <laughs> um, which by the way, she's been killing it, um, yeah. with her, with her full dive into pro racing. Exactly. Pretty awesome to see. Yep. Uh, good job, Amy. Uh, packing gear. Uh, I wanted to touch on this really quick. Make sure you pack your stuff the night before. Uh, I usually at least the day before. Yeah. Yep. Um, with motocross, we used to even like load everything up the mm -hmm. day before. And it was just so easy because you get in the car and you go. Yeah. Right. So easy. So My stuff will be lined out in the garage, ready to go. And so all I have to do is do a final check, zip the bag up, throw it in the back of the truck, mount the bike, go. You're done. Yeah. So that's a really uh, a key thing that I would say for prepping. And that goes a long way to helping you psychologically on race day. And here's the other thing. Don't be prepping your bike and prepping your, your gear bag and prepping everything until midnight the night before you leave oh, for a race. Yeah. Nothing. You know how they say like, never go to an ATM after like, I think like Chris Rock said something like that. Like, like going to an, if you're at an ATM at 3am, there's nothing good coming out of that. Yeah, Nothing like, at all. Yeah. And if you're working on your bike after geez, after bedtime, I'll just say whatever that is for you. Nothing good's going to come from it. Nothing. Like just, yep. just, yeah. So, uh, nutrition, let's cover that really quick. Uh, leading up to the event, uh, you will want to make sure that you're sussing out any type of strategies, finding out if something does cause issues with your gut. Yeah. You don't um, want to be doing that. Whether on the bike or off the bike. Yeah. You want to make sure that you're, you're figuring that stuff out. But then the day before a common thing for a lot of people, carb loading, eh, 
Yeah, there is science to back it up. And basically what we're talking about is packing the muscles with glycogen or providing them with excessive or uh, sufficient amount of glycogen is the ideal situation. Yeah, but pasta, just eating a bunch of pasta isn't necessarily the best way to do it because that can cause, you know, as it packs you full of glycogen, it can also cause other issues. So uh, rice is something that people usually eat a little more of leading up to a race, but you don't need to eat a ton, especially if it's like an XC race that's like or an XCO race that's like two hours or less, even three hours or less. You don't have to, you don't have to carb load for this, yeah. right? And if you do car, the one thing that I've always found interesting is people carb load like the dinner before and just understanding metabolic rates. Yeah. Shouldn't it be the lunch yeah. on the day before? Exactly. Latest. If you're talking about supplying yourself with glycogen, it's not just like a massive thing. And then you sleep on a heavy stomach, you know, that's full. And then you also sleeping on a full stomach as well as problematic in the sense that it it doesn't allow for proper release of hgh and everything else that you can have so basically your body is dealing with trying to digest all that food when it could be repairing itself yeah so uh yeah there are a lot of problems with that strategy but i i usually just increase i start to have i usually don't have a lot of carbohydrate in my diet when i don't need it Mm -hmm. and then as i'm getting closer to a race i'll start to add more of it in so it's usually race or usually rice and chew on some kale. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I actually am not one of those guys. So, um, morning of stick to what, you know, Yep. that's a really key thing because if you eat something on the morning of, that's bad for you, that's, that's I like, I heard that this guy does this, so I've never tested it, but I'm going to do it on race day. It's always bad. Absolutely. Go with something that is going to, um, depending, usually it's two and a half hours, three hours before a race is when you should have your last meal. Mm-hmm. And you can have something small beforehand, but it's not going to do a whole lot thereafter. So, yeah. but, uh, have a good meal. That's two and a half to three hours before is usually a solid bet of, of how to prep there. And then like pre-race stuff, I've seen a lot of people like take like a gel right before they ride. And to be honest, that isn't really effective uh, because what you're doing is just requiring your body to digest something. Yeah. If you want to get something in like that, maybe an hour before or something, a quick little shot of caffeine gel or something that could be helpful, but you know, don't do it right then. Uh, Then course recon, let's cover that. And that's kind of different for different disciplines, I guess. Um, For XC, I see a lot of people just like, either pedaling around or doing full race pace. And there's a kind of a, a, a cause or a, I, I should say a situation where both can be helpful. First, I, I would say the day before an XC race, uh, we, we call these, uh, openers, leg openers. And basically what you're just trying to do is you're just trying to, um, simulate some type of a similar, but short effort that you'll experience on race day to familiarize your body with that type of an effort in those conditions, Yeah, make sure that everything's okay. Also, there's a lot to be said for the, even the chemical effects of, of hard efforts like that being very beneficial, uh, for you. So, cause it uh, seems like that initial breakthrough on race day where you're like taxed and taxed and taxed until your body's like, Hey, let's recruit, you know, all this muscle, the, I guess, muscular recruitment. Yeah. It seems like that breakthrough is easier if you've done a semi hard pedal the day before. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I'm not sure a hundred percent on the science behind that, but that is a, a, an observed yes situation for me as well. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's something that I would recommend doing. You can loop that into reconning the course. So when you recon a course, first of all, always just take the time to look at obstacles that might be challenging for you yeah. and never feel bad about that. Yep. Like in the motocross world, for example, I remember there was a good period of time where I like never looked at anything first lap and I was foolish, but I was skilled enough to be like totally comfortable with just going out on the arena cross track and first lap doing everything. And 
that's something that I don't recommend. It's just not worth it. Just like check How, it out. How's your elbow feeling right now? Yeah. From patting yourself on the back there, bud. <laughs> well, <laughs> I thought you were going to say from breaking it because that did happen. But yeah. um, a, a long time ago, I should say, not right now. But yeah. uh, no, it's it, that's like a thing. I see yeah. a lot of people just get comfortable like, oh, no, I'll just send it for a slap. What are you, silly? I'll send it. So, yeah. but it's not. It's just not worth it, man. Especially in XC Enduro downhill, like course recon's huge. Check really things out to, first. Yeah. Um, walking a course, I don't recommend unless it's like uh, you're required to walk instead of ride. Yeah. Uh, riding is a more efficient way of moving your body places with less energy. So walking is just a good way to load up your legs. Yeah. Uh, I would try to get that course recon done. If it's like an important race, like an A race, at least the day before. Um, if you can, multiple days before would be great. Uh, if it's just a B race or a C race, you can do it the morning of, and in certain situations on an XC race, uh, XC course, you might not even need to do a course recon. Yeah. Just know that it could be a good way to get in your warm up too. Exactly. That's so. what I look at it as more. Yeah. And then last two things we're going to cover later, um, in another, uh, episode is pacing and, and going through that and then post-race analysis. But really in terms of prepping for the race, I think we more or less covered it. Do you have anything else that you would add in, Stephen? Honestly, uh, no. I think we did a pretty decent job. Cool. Let's, our both of our elbows are sore now. Pat yeah. ourselves on the back. Let's move into the tips. I'll kick it off with mine this okay. week. Okay. Sound good? You have an interesting tip. Yeah. It's uh, not normal. It's not a tangible thing. It isn't. It's YouTubers, uh, but specifically mountain bike ones. Yeah. I was realizing the other day, I basically have my own like network of mountain bike content. I just like, instead of turning on the TV and going to that channel, like just open up YouTube and I have like so much content. It's pretty sweet. Almost so a library. Indeed. Content. I would call it as such um, comprehensive one at that. The Dewey decimal system. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we have uh, Google it. Yeah. BKXE, Brian Kennedy. He's been on the podcast before. He's awesome. Awesome stuff. Um, uh, skills with Phil. It's an awesome one. He's a really, he's a funny guy, really cool seeming guy. Mm -hmm. I haven't met him, but uh, he has entertaining videos and gives out great tips. 
Seth's bike hacks. Seth is a really nice dude that also he puts out a lot of funny content and he also, the dude's a killer trials rider. Okay. Uh, so it's cool to see. Um, that's a fun one to watch on top of that. IFHT, uh, films. If you look up, I think it's, uh, if you look that up, you'll see their stuff. They've done a ton of, of, of really cool videos yeah. that they, I'm faster than you. Yes. Great. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, yeah. They have great ones, but they also have their own vlog, uh, yes. which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Matt and Jason, I believe. So check that out. And those ones are just, it's really fun and enjoyable. And, uh, yeah, man, I really dig it. Also single track sampler. He's another dude that has one, mm -hmm. a pretty cool guy seeming I've never met him, but he seems great. So, um, just anyways, I, I just wanted to give those guys a shout out and hopefully turn you guys on to some fun mountain biking content from average Joe's like you and I, like this isn't like some overly produced, like really, you know, unachievable thing. Like these guys are normal like us and it's cool to watch that. So I, I dig it. Yeah, that's mine. So question, when you, when you start in the mountain bike podcast or not mountain bike podcast, but the mountain bike content on YouTube, do you still inevitably end up in the bad Russian drivers crashing <laughs> section of YouTube? Cause Somehow. I always do. I don't know why, but every time I'm there, it ends up a 30 minute video at the end of just watching Russian people just like destroy <laughs> each other on the road. Dash cams, man. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is, but yeah. that's where I always end up. On if YouTube. you let it play through, who knows where the YouTube rabbit hole will take you. Seriously. It's a it, dangerous it place. It is it's terrible. Yeah. But good. Uh, yours, Steven. Mine's kind of a, it's a big group of things actually. Okay. Um, so, uh, the girlfriend decided that her 2007 Mazda three, we should stop really quick. What? I, if somebody writes in and saying that you're objectifying your girlfriend by calling her the girlfriend, I was called out for this, for objectifying my oh. wife by calling her the wife, the wife. So your sweet girlfriend. Yes. Yes. She's a nice lady. Yes. <laughs> nice she, woman. Uh, I would yeah, say she's a nice seems her, yeah. makes her seem old woman. Yes. Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, so, so her 2007 Mazda three wagon, uh, just it's gotten to the point where the car she's getting ready to go into PA school and she doesn't want to deal with possibly having to deal with a car dying when she doesn't have a job or anything like that. Right. So she went and got one of the new Subaru Crosstrex, mm. which is a, a gutless little car, but it's, yeah, cool. it serves purpose. It's cool. It's got yeah. high ground clearance and, yeah. and we promptly took the tires and wheels off of it and put toy all terrains on it and <laughs> 15 inch wheels. It's like a tiny little overlander. It, it really, it's like yeah. a little mini overlander. It's yeah, so it's funny. Sweet. And, uh, so we're doing a bunch of like custom stuff to it. She's really excited about it. She wants to put a lift kit on it and yeah. just do all sorts of silly things with it. <laughs> so, um, with that, um, her envy rack, her original Kuat envy has mm. just seen some better days and it's to the point where there's some broken parts on it. She's, you know, scraped the little, uh, hitch lock, um, spinner doodad on the bottom. And yep. so just ended up deciding to get the new Sherpa 2.0, which such is a sweet rack. so simple to use. So clean. The one thing I like about that over the envy and even the envy 2.0 is it's narrower. Yeah. It doesn't stick out as far when everything's stuck. Uh, stowed and folded away and i'm saying side to side yeah it's just narrower it's so, so clean so clean so compact um works Dude, one, really one well. other thing i love with it yeah when you pull the latch first of all like the spring the pull on the latch is just perfect well like it, it feels good yeah i don't know I, I don't know if it's getting across here but it's like the perfect amount of resistance and then when it thunks into place there's no slop it's super positive per, it's yeah. just so well made and that's a, the envy 2.0 has the same base yeah. assembly so it has that same positive lock and that same feel and the spring load of the the lever um but it's just a it's just a great rack um killer 
no pun intended there, it was just a great <laughs> bike rack. <laughs> it's just awesome. And so with that, then like four days later, um, she's had the new, uh, the new Force One SE Super X on order for a while from Cannondale, their new cross bike. Sweet bike. And... Holy crap, that bike is amazing. It's like metal flake, or it's like a gold flake orange. It is. So it's like bright orange, but when you put it in the sun, it's it It's got sparkles. this gold pearl to it. It's just a beautiful bike. All the Cannondale and Super X logos are ghosted in and kind of like a blood orange red. So good. Oh, it's such an awesome and bike. And you put the new um, WTB tires on there, right? Well, it uh, actually comes with the Riddler 37s in the tan wall, which good doesn't choice. exist. Good choice. It's uh, The thing just works. It's so good. Good. I it love looks, that bike. It looks really good. So and then really, you put orange Supercast tape on it? Or? I put the Supercast um, Starfade in orange, which she actually doesn't like. Really? She wants all black. Oh, well, it looks really good. Yeah, it looks good now. And I told her it's staying on until that stuff wore <laughs> out. Because that <laughs> bar tape's kind of expensive. Yeah, so. it looks really good. Yeah. So no, just like this whole plethora of things that, you know, she just got. Sweet up. And I'm just super excited about it. Because I'm having fun getting to, you know, de-chrome the entire car. We got all, you know, satin black badges. And then I ordered a bunch of... Uh, Avery vinyl wrap to get rid of all of the chrome stuff on the grill nice. and vinyl wrapping the roof. And sweet. It's, it's a fun little car. It's a fun little bike rack and it's a sweet little bike. It's everything about that. Sweet deal. So that's what I've been playing with. All right. Yeah. Everybody, uh, you can go to mtbpodcast.com to share this podcast with everyone. Please do so. And you can submit your questions at mtbpodcast.com. Yes. Check out the shop. Uh, help us uh, put even more time into this thing. That would be great. Uh, and thank you everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Have a nice day.